Hello and welcome to The Stack. It's a reinvention show this week. We speak with Nick Marino on the new Hodinki, the influential watch publication and website, plus the relaunch of the music title Wax Poetics, and finally Darren Stiles, publisher of Attitude and also of the upcoming Rolling Stone UK. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show to talk about Hodinki, the incredibly influential watch publication and website. For volume 8, the title has been through a redesign, which looks beautiful on paper. It looks fresh, reinvigorated. I had the pleasure to speak with Nick Marino, Senior VP of Content, on the redesign and the highlights of the new issue. Well, the idea is that watch experts and watch newcomers alike are all welcome. And that's not easy to do because you don't want to dumb it down for the people who are hardcore enthusiasts, uh, but you also don't want to make it this super elite, insular, clubby, exclusive thing. And so what we tried to do with this redesign was make sure that there was some story in there for everyone at every level of interest. Not every single story will appeal to every single person, but somewhere in there is a story for you. I mean, it would be impossible if, if everything appeals to everyone. And, and I love the font. I mean, there's more kind of use of color. There's a shoot here called the Baywatch one as well. It's just, just incredibly fun. So tell us a bit more about how it changed physically, actually, the magazine. Yeah, so for readers who may not know, Hodinkee Magazine comes out twice a year and for seven issues has looked basically the same. Very elegant, meant to be collectible, almost more like a soft cover coffee table book. And we love those and we're proud of those. But for issue eight, we felt we were ready to evolve. And, you know, Hodinkee, like Monocle, like every other media brand, is in a constant state of evolution. And the magazine had stayed more or less the same. So what we thought we would do was just really shake it up. And we brought in much more color, much more energy, more illustration, more sort of ambitious typography. We changed the paper stock. It's this super luxurious kind of toothy paper. But it's still the same trim size as before. And we thought that was important. So if, if someone had been collecting volumes one through seven and they buy volume eight, it'll fit neatly alongside those on the shelf, but it has a whole new energy. And just uh, coming back to the topic about the magazine, kind of opening up to kind of perhaps people that were not reading kind of watch magazines or publications, was there more of a concern with you guys about kind of, you know, diversity, just to expand a little bit more, people that can potentially be interested in Hodinkee? Well, yes, I mean, that's, it's top of mind for all of us is how can we make this the most welcoming, inclusive place to learn about watches in the world? We will never forget about the hardcore enthusiasts. They are our base. But that's a small group of people. And there are millions more all around the world who might be interested in this world if they had a way in. And what this magazine is trying to do is to offer them a way in. You know, I always, I always say that the watch is not the end place. It's the starting place. 
So maybe you use watches as a way to talk about popular culture. And we, we have a story in the magazine about the history of the gadget watch, you know, from Dick Tracy to James Bond through the Jetsons. Maybe you come to it through a cultural lens. Or maybe you're interested in the watch as a piece of fashion. So we have a story that speaks to it from that angle. The watch is really not where the story ends. It's, it's where the story begins. And, and to me, what this magazine tries to do is use a watch as a portal into all these other worlds. Tell us a bit more about, you know, the type of people that read Hodinki. I mean, you, I know you're based in the United States, but who are your readers? Are, are they just Americans or do you have quite a big readership in other countries or continents? Yeah, we, we have a huge readership abroad. In fact, in Japan, for any of your listeners who are in Japan, Hodinki publishes a special Japanese edition in Japanese that's available both in the country of Japan and also available to order via the American store. Uh, for people who speak and read Japanese wherever they may be. So that's that's an especially cool edition. But for everybody else, you get the English edition, which is the one that we make here in the States. And it's, you know, that look, the watch industry is based primarily in Switzerland. And so we have a number of stories that, that touch down there. But one of my missions with this volume was to show how global watches really are. So there's a great story about this young watch designer named Fernando Ronzon, who's based in Mexico. And he's trying to sort of bring back that country's legacy of watchmaking with a kind of a mid-century feel. And I thought it was important to tell that story because I think you know Mexico is super underrepresented in the watch world and yet they have something to say too. That was actually one of my favorite stories. I really enjoyed that. And how is, I mean, of course, COVID-19 affected so many industries of the magazine publishing, of course. What about the watch industry? How did they fare? Did something change? What's your view on that? Well, it's been, it's been interesting to come aboard Hodinkee during COVID-19. I was hired during the pandemic. And everyone would always tell me, you know, if this were a normal year, uh, we would be doing X, Y, and Z. One of the things that we would be doing would be attending... Uh, the big trade shows in the spring. Watches and Wonders is the, the main one. Of course, that was all virtual this year. So the whole way that products are released has changed from a big kind of classic on the ground in-person trade show to this kind of steady drip of uh, digital releases. Another thing that's interesting is that the watch industry, I think, is learning a lot from the sneaker industry which is making a lot of limited edition pieces that drop, sell out quickly, and then take on huge additional value in the secondary market. This kind of thing both delights and irritates <laughs> watch enthusiasts because you know, they, they are frustrated when they can't have one, but of course, happy when they can. And so it, it creates a culture around watches that's much more akin to something like what Nike or Supreme has created that to me has been fascinating to watch i agree and, and it feels like you know they, they're becoming i mean not becoming they always were but kind of a desire piece you know i think i read somewhere that i think a brand they, they were even making less of them just for the for the product to become even more valuable actually yeah so watches have always been an object of desire but in a really different way in the old days you would decide that you wanted to watch and you might save up for it for months or maybe years, maybe even longer. 
And then one day you would take your money to the store and you would buy it. That's how it used to work. Now, a hot watch may be gone in 10 minutes. So it's still desire, but the metabolism has increased rapidly. That's very well said. What about, uh, I'm, I'm curious about this, Nick. Do, do you guys also do events? So perhaps it's too early to say. No, not at all. Again, for readers who may not be familiar with Hodinkee, Hodinkee is sort of the most authoritative voice in the world of watches. And that's across all media platforms. So the main one is the website, which um, has a fully built out editorial platform updating constantly with written stories like you'd find in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or you know BBC or anything else. Then of course there's photography and video and podcast and social media, a lot of the same platforms that Monica would have, right? But then, then we publish this, this magazine twice a year, which is the reason I'm talking to you. On top of all that, <laughs> there are in-person events, which as with everywhere else in the world have been totally frozen for the past 18 months. We are thrilled that they are finally coming back. Our hometown is New York City, uh, so it's easy for us to host events there. But we also like to host events when we show up somewhere else. Geneva is a natural spot for us to host events. We're there all the time. Or I should say, we will be there all the time uh, very soon now that we can offline. Nick, uh, it's been such a delight talking to you. And I absolutely loved kind of the redesign. Are you, are you ready? working on volume nine or are you just or are you having a little bit of a rest now no no volume nine is is up and running uh it'll publish in the fall probably around november 1st in time for holiday and it's going to be an evolution of volume eight you know we're not going to just make seven more issues that look like volume eight we're going to keep iterating on it before i worked for hodinki i spent 18 years in newspapers and magazines and one thing i know is that in order to keep a magazine vital, it has to have oxygen and it has to feel alive. So volume eight is not the end point. It's just the next step in the process and volume nine will build on that. That was Nick Marino from Hodinki. Volume eight is out now. On more good news, we found out that Rolling Stone will have its very own UK edition. It will be published by Darren Stiles, who also publishes Attitude magazine. The iconic title should be out in September in British newsstands. But what can we look forward to? Well, Darren has the answers for us. Rolling Stone was, I think, 67, 68, something like that. And for about a year, both Jan Wenner and Mick Jagger, Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone, and Mick Jagger, had a joint venture to publish the magazine in the UK. And... Jan Werner described it as a really nice way to spend a million dollars and have a really nice time for about a year. But it was all money out and never money in. But they did have a really nice time. I mean, this was the 1960s. The office was in Chelsea. So you can imagine the, the party scene that would have surrounded it. So, yeah, that was obviously 50 years ago now. So I, I think it's probably ready for another go, but not in Chelsea and probably not party central. Although we do love a party. Uh, we've got a good record with Attitude magazine for the Attitude Awards and our live events. So, um, so yeah, parties will feature. And Darren, as a fan of kind of music journalism in general as well, I, I, I do think there is kind of a gap in the market for it. And especially, I mean, we're talking about the UK. I mean, 
I'm sure a lot of actually British stars are on the cover, of course, of the the, the original Rolling Stone as well. So it's it's definitely a good fit, I think. I think it's a really interesting time, actually, because obviously over the last year, 18 months, there's been a fair bit of consolidation and exit actually right across the magazine business, but particularly in the music sector. So uh, Q magazine obviously went last year and that previously back in its, its heyday was selling 200,000 copies a month, although it had dwindled significantly by the time it finished. But I think the thing that's interesting about Rolling Stone is it's, although it's anchored in music and steeped in music, it has several other pillars to its editorial proposition. So it's big into entertainment in general, but television and film specifically. And it's really strong on politics with a little p and photojournalism. And so I think it's a really broad canvas and it just feels to me editorially as a, as a package that it's kind of of this time. We're in a very interesting political age. Music and politics have always been uh, very close bedfellows. And I, and I think there's an opportunity to storytell in that particular market sector in, in a way that's perhaps not been done for a while, if ever. So I think it's a, it's, it's a broad a broad lifestyle music in interest magazine with an opportunity to, to develop. So I'm quite excited about that, actually. As the publisher of Attitude, we've, we've worked with a, a significant number of music acts o- over the years. Dua Lipa uh, was on our cover last year. And so obviously we're quite attuned to what's happening in UK music in particular, but, but also on the, on the global stage anyhow. So this just gives us a different, broader uh, platform, I think. And yeah, I think, I think, I think it's, it's right for this time. What can we expect uh, from the magazines? For example, when do you think the first issue is coming out and, and how different will it be from, from uh, the American one? Well, I can tell you exclusively, we're launching soon. We're going we're gonna to appear, I think, more quickly than people might expect because we've been working on this for some time. So we'll publish at the end of September. That will be our, our first issue. So we'll have two issues, therefore, out by the end of the year. We're going to publish bimonthly, six issues a year. The American title is monthly, but the pagination in the States is is, uh, 100 pages an issue. We'll have higher production values and a a higher page count than that. So we'll launch at the end of September. As one of Rolling Stone's international licensees, and there's 15 of us, incidentally, there are 15 editions now all around the world, and we will have access to their content pool. So not just the US content pool, but the worldwide content content pool so we can share our content with any one of those licensees and vice versa so um, we will be drawing on that pool quite significantly if it speaks to our market and as you say a lot of British stars have long and and very healthy relationships with Rolling Stone in the in the US and so there's an opportunity for us to draw from that but then this is a local edition so it needs to feel British the majority of the artists that will feature will be British. I mean, we are, after America, the biggest exporter of music in the world. So there's a huge talent base here that we'll have the opportunity to promote and support. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, and obviously not just the, the Ed Sheerans, the Adels of this world, but also the, um, you know, the up and coming artists, the Rina Sawayamas, the Youngbloods, people who are just starting to make their, make their mark. So we have such a fantastic music proposition in the UK that clearly that will figure big. But then the same goes for our, our film and television industries 
as well. So there's an opportunity to showcase that. So we'll be leading with British, that's for sure, uh, but have the opportunity to draw on this enormous content pool from all around the world. And it's interesting, again, you mentioned before that your other title, Attitude, I think it does have a little bit of in common as well in Rolling Stone. I think it would be kind of a nice kind of addition because, you know, I've been a reader of Attitude for years. And again, they cover pop culture in, in an amazing way. And if I may turn actually a little bit to Attitude, how's it going, the title? I think it's such a kind of a strong title. It's been through a few changes throughout the years, but I think it remains extremely solid. We've been very fortunate, actually. I think like a number of publishers, we've seen our digital reach expand through lockdown. Uh, we have a healthy digital subscription base and we've maintained that. We actually, we publish currently 13 issues a year. So we publish every four weeks. And so right through lockdown, we've not missed an issue and our advertisers have stayed the course and our, our readers especially so. I bought Attitude in 2015, and surprisingly, perhaps, I was the first gay man to own Attitude magazine. So, launched in 1994 by Richard Desmond, it was uh, he divested of that at the same time as his top shelf portfolio uh, when he bought the Daily Express and Daily Star, and it moved with those top shelf titles through a series of, of, of owners until I bought it in 2015, and it needed some work at that point as a gay man and a career publisher, it was my first chance really to meld the personal and the professional and get truly engaged with something I care deeply about. And so over that time, we've, we've turned the magazine around quite significantly and introduced or, or, or bolstered the Attitude Awards, which is now this huge blue riband event we do every year at the Camden Roundhouse. So 650 guests in black tie, guests from Prince Harry to Cher to Kylie to Whoopi Goldberg and so on over the years. And so we've developed that really nicely. And if there were a Venn diagram, I guess, of Rolling Stone and Attitude content, there is an, there is an overlap in, in, in terms of, uh, of music and entertainment, albeit written for a slightly, slightly different audience. So, um, so yeah, Attitude has, has done well and has prevailed and makes money now, which it, it didn't when I bought it. And so that's developed nicely. And that's really given us the the platform in our publishing business to then go hunting for 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 this and other titles to to sit alongside it so i think the the attitude credentials for sure played a big part in our being able to get the uk license for rolling stone it demonstrated to our american colleagues that we know who to talk to where to go and can can find a story attitude was the the magazine to which george michael gave his first interview after coming out it was the the magazine to which Elton John and David Furnish gave the only interview about their wedding and so on and so on right up to last October when uh, when we had Dua Lipa on the cover so we've got a really strong editorial record and that's played beautifully into into Rolling Stone. No it is indeed and I remember Attitude was even sold uh, in Brazil when I was a when I was younger as well so it's it has quite a, even an international presence even though it's a British title but funny enough, Rolling Stone, I don't know if you agree with me, Darren, still today, I mean, if you're on the cover of Rolling Stone, I think it means a lot for an artist. It doesn't matter if you're a big one like Dua Lipa, Adele, it's still such a kind of a mark in their career in a way. So I hope you continue. I'm actually very curious who's going to be on the cover. I know probably that's a, a bit top secret now, right? I'd love to tell you, but I can't. Um, I honestly can't. What I can say is, is for the launch edition, we are doing multiple covers because you only get one chance to make a first impression. And 
although the Rolling Stone brand, as you say, is huge and global and long established, there'll be people in the UK who will be coming to it the first time. So it's important, we think, for our launch issue that we demonstrate that this is music and film and television and politics with a small p. So you can expect multiple covers and a representation of the, the basket of content. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. Obviously, a Rolling Stone cover is a brilliant thing. And I think within an hour of the announcement that we were to launch in the UK, I probably had a dozen emails from various different agents and management and PRs with some attached to some really big names to, to get themselves to the, to the front of the queue. And if we're doing six issues a year, then there still aren't going to be very many of those to go. And funny enough, we had our our first call with our international colleagues the day before yesterday, and they were saying that um, in Australia, if you get a Rolling Stone cover, they produce a ring with the Rolling Stone logo on it, engraved with the date and issue number of your cover, in much the same way if you play in the Super Bowl, uh, you get a ring to mark the fact they produce this, this ring for people who've been on the Rolling Stone cover in Australia. And I think that's a lovely, a lovely idea and kind of underscores the status uh, the status of that and when you think of some of the iconic Rolling Stone covers over the years the the John Lennon Yoko Ono cover of him wrapped naked around her uh, the you know Arnold Schwarzenegger with his cigar Whoopi Goldberg in the bath you know just some extraordinary uh, extraordinary work from some extraordinary photographers so uh, the bar's set high and it's uh, it's exciting and a, a, and a worry and a challenge simultaneously but but yeah what a fantastic place to be in. That was Darren Styles there, publisher of Attitude and Rolling Stone UK. I can't wait. And finally, the relaunch of an iconic music title, Wax Poetics. It was launched in 2001 and had its last print publication back in 2016. David Holt is one of the publishers of the Coat publication, which was a celebration of record-digging culture. He tells me more about the return of the title and why print is still very important. Wax Poetics was actually first launched in New York in 2001, and it was actually launched by uh, Brian DeGenti and Andre Torres. Uh, they were the original founders. And Brian is still is still the editor of the of the magazine, and it was launched to basically give hip hop its artistic credibility, and from that it started reporting on all different styles of uh, predominantly black American music, not exclusively, but predominantly, so funk, soul, jazz, hip hop, etc., etc., and. It had this sort of amazing journey where it became a, a cult magazine. If you were into record collecting or into music in a, in a sort of deep way, uh, Wax Poetics became this thing that you started referencing and it definitely influenced a generation of collectors, DJs, artists. Uh, and it had this unique size, it had this great logo and it had a brilliant run. And then I think around sort of 2014, 2014, 2015, 2016, they started having sort of business difficulties and it stopped being a newsstand title in 2016. The magazine did continue to live in a kind of an ad hoc print on demand basis. And then we, we got involved in around late 2019. And I think this is very good news for music journalism in general, because you're right. I mean, there was a period that, you know, that the industry was suffering a little bit. There were some closures of other magazines as well. 
And it's nice that you guys still believe in the print title because I have the copy in front of me. And I was telling you, I mean, of course, amazing articles, but it looks so beautiful as well. I think that's so important. It's lovely of you to say that. And I, I think that's one of the things that people of my generation definitely got into Waxwetics was the aesthetics, first and foremost. It was very simple, you know, one big bold image is the cover, bright titling, simple fonting. And then actually the style of the magazine, the, the inspiration, the original inspiration was things like National Geographic. You know, the design of the magazine is not overdone. It's about the delivery of information in a very unique way. And yes, we, we, we believe in that and we believe in print. But to answer the point on about music journalism, we actually believe in long form uh, music journalism and the fact that you can tell really you know long stories that are perhaps lost that are perhaps forgotten that haven't been told before and that's what what's politics is really about and that is what we want to continue in terms of pushing the, the title forwards both in print and in our digital offering and, and by the way how are you planning to sell the magazine are you going to select a few perhaps shops or new stands or is it going to be kind of more a subscription based yeah, so the whole thing is actually membership-based. The, orig- the original way our relationship with Waxpoetics started, we got in touch with the founders and we actually released two issues on a very small level via Rush Hour Records in Amsterdam and they distributed for us around Europe. And what we learned from there was if we just did the small independent publishing model, we would never quite make it live again. It would always be a side project for us. And we actually, you know, really respected the brand, actually saw a sort of opportunity within it and began to look at different models that were around away away from music. So we actually looked at things like The Athletic or movie in indie cinema and created this sort of model which was a membership first model and since we've launched it's been going great we now we have just under 4,000 members all over the world uh, I think 37 different countries predominantly that that membership base is in the US but you know they're all over sort of northern Europe uh, Japan Australia New Zealand and then we have members we have members in Peru we have members in Iceland so it's a really truly international community so that's how the magazine is sold people purchase directly from us and beyond the two magazines that they get a year they get access to digital content so every week there's new deep dive long form aesthetic stories augmented with playlists mixes podcasts and then we will be launching a community section in, in August so our members can communicate and learn about music on a peer-to-peer basis. Let's talk about some of the content. I mean, besides the amazing uh, double cover, I love the Tammy Terrell one. And as a Brazilian, I really enjoyed the Sergio Mendes article as well. It was really fun, I mean, to learn a bit more about him as well. Yeah, I mean, Sergio Mendes, classic artist, and also I think... It's worth mentioning the Herb Alpert article. You know, people do know him as a fairly sort of cheesy artist, but the article goes a lot lot deeper than that. And you begin to, you know, understand his influence on Brazilian and modern music and pop music. And there was a debate, you know, whether we should put him into the magazine. But to me, that is pure wax poetics. And that's the wax poetics that I grew up on, you know, learning more about artists, redefining them in your mind perhaps collecting deeper in terms of the records that they produced. And we just wanted to continue that legacy within this next iteration of Wax P. David, I know you guys have also playlists on, on Spotify. What, what have you been listening actually at the moment? 
We've just done a really huge deep dive into Brit Funk. There's a British DJ called Greg Wilson, who's who is renowned in that scene, and he he's written this complete. I guess it's almost like a love letter to the scene. I guess uh, it's a three part thing that we did across our digital channels. So there's playlists for that, and that is fairly long, but there's a lot of incredible dance floor, funk, jazz type stuff, and then I guess the one that I'm keep revisiting out of issue one is Simandi. I don't know if I fully appreciated how good they were when I first started listening to them and they sort of sat in my collection and not revisited and just strangely really and their first three albums are just amazing and I would highly recommend it anybody anybody listening to go and source and listen to those. That was David Holt there, publisher of Wax Poetics, which is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And to end the show, a little timekeeping reference here. This is Madonna with Hung Up. You've been listening to The Stack, I'm Fernando Gustavo Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Time goes by so slowly. Time goes by so slowly. Time goes by.